Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Economics, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm Tim Jones, and my guest today is Patrick Honohan, author of Currency, Credit and Crisis, Central Banking in Ireland and Europe, published in 2019 by Cambridge University Press. For anyone who wants to get to grips with the nature and scale of the last financial crisis, how it was managed and mismanaged, and its particular impact on a small open economy, this is the book to read. This is in part because it covers complex issues, yet is written for a non-specialist audience, but mostly it's because, as Olivier Blanchard says on the back of the book, this is financial crisis seen from the driver's seat. This is because Professor Honohan is not just an accomplished monetary economist who has taught at the London School of Economics, the University of California, San Diego, the Australian National University, University College Dublin and Trinity Dublin. He was also, during the critical period from 2009 to 2015, the Governor of the Central Bank of Ireland and a member of the Governing Council of the European Central Bank. The book combines a monetary and financial history of Ireland since independence, some theory and history around the formation of the euro area, and an assessment of lessons learned from the crisis. But best of all for readers like me, it's a behind-the-scenes memoir of crisis firefighting in Ireland and across Europe. Patrick, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Tim. Um, As I said, this book is not a straightforward memoir, but I've been a little surprised at how few books have come out from the central banks. I mean, we got Lorenzo Bini-Smaghi wrote a short assessment of the early stage of the crisis, and Panikos Dimitriadis wrote a diary of the Cypriot crisis. But unless I've forgotten someone, um, there's been nothing else like your book, the kind of sweeping analysis. What persuaded you to do this when nobody else did? Well, um, I think I suppose the main reason was uh, any financial crisis is very uh, fraught and contested, and uh, lots of different ideas float around. What should we? What should we be doing? We should be doing something different to what uh, the people in charge are doing. I thought it was important to get the first draft of history or the second draft of history down while I remembered it while anybody else who might disagree with points could raise points that they disagreed with, people haven't by and large, and set the the record straight because funny ideas emerge. I've read a lot of financial history, economic history. Funny ideas emerge uh, usually 10 or 15 years after the events, and they stick in people's minds even though they are very far from the truth. So I wanted to get the, the story down as I saw it. Why, why we did what we did, what were the pressures, what were the alternatives, um, what were the plans A, B, and C, and, and how far down the alphabet did we have to go to get something that, that worked? Hmm. Well, I definitely want to come back to some of those, but I think we should begin by setting the scene for when you took office in September 2009. Um, Lehman Brothers had just had filed for bankruptcy a year before, and Ireland more than most countries, had really been hit very hard by the shockwaves. Could you set us the scene? Yeah, there is a tendency to say, oh, well, Lehman Brothers failed and it, it, it swept across the world. But actually, the countries that were badly hit, inverted commas, by Lehman's were the countries that had put themselves in very vulnerable positions. And it wasn't a question of uh, what, caused, what caused them to collapse. It was a question of which event would trigger a collapse which was inevitable. And that was the case in, in Ireland. The, the, the banks in Ireland, both in the locally 
owned and controlled banks and the foreign owned banks that were operating in Ireland had really uh, lost the run of themselves. I mean, this was an age of financialization, the early years of the 2000s, and indeed reaching back into the late 1990s, where worldwide uh, banks had access to enormous sums and were looking for places to invest them. The Irish banks were able to source uh, effectively unlimited volumes of, of uh, uh, funding, and they ploughed it into property development. Property mm-hmm. not only in Ireland, but property uh, developed by Irish developers in you know, London, Chicago, uh, Shanghai, Romania. So this was a, a characteristic of several other small economies and indeed big economies. But a reckless buccaneering bank in a big economy could easily be coped with by the resources, financial resources of a big economy like Germany. There was a couple of banks got into very bad trouble in Germany, but it wasn't big in relation to the German economy. But in countries like like Ireland, and indeed Iceland would be another example, Cyprus would be another example, um, buccaneering banks got so big that uh, when they collapsed, as they were inevitably going to do, just happened that Lehman's was the trigger for uh, a, a sort of global panic, they were too big or very big uh, in relation to the capacity of the national government to cope with it. That, that, was, that was Ireland's position. So when the banks had been expanding and lending money to everybody, not just property developers, they, built, they lent money to the property developers and then they lent money to the uh, households to buy the property that the property developers had built. Um, the This created a level of income and activity in the economy that also boosted the government's revenue. And the government said, well, this is great. We have lots of, of revenue, so we can afford to pay public servants more. We can afford to uh, have more lavish uh, public uh, expenditure programs, many of which were very valuable, some of which maybe not so valuable. So the whole uh, economy had got skewed out of what could be sustainable in uh, any kind of medium-term perspective. So that was the situation in September 2008. In fact, it was it, it had, the property market had already peaked well before that. It peaked in, in the 2007, and you're already into a downturn situation, and people are saying, well, it's, 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 this is going to be a, 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 a slow, a, a gradual descent into normality. But mm. then the collapse of the world financial system, if you like, or the apparent the near collapse of the world financial system in September and October of 2008 really uh, put, um, put the Irish economy uh, on the skids. Mm. Well, as you point out there, I mean, I think there's, there's always an assumption that um, regulators should have seen these things coming well in advance. And, well, in fact, you, you, you had famously made some of these warnings in advance about the uh, the skewing of the Irish economy. But as you point out there, the political incentives and the um, the incentives to households uh, and to corporates were were facing the other direction. It, do you think it's ever possible to have a, 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 a powerful enough regulator to overcome those kind of incentives in advance? Um, I think it I think it is. Um... In well, in a democracy, uh, yeah. in sort of a European environment, there are other. Uh, I remember 
many years ago uh, advising some small country. Uh, so per- perhaps the, the central bank should say this and then suddenly realizing that if the central bank said that, that uh, they would be immediately have lost their, um, their jobs the following day. But the financial regulator, if the financial regulator says something that's going to trigger uh, loss, of, loss of job, well, that in itself is a powerful tool. Um, it's going to say to the general public, wait a minute, we trusted this financial regulator and, and here he, he said something that should happen and the government have stopped him. Um, maybe we're not satisfied with this. So there, there is a democratic feedback. Um, mm. And I, I, ultimately, the financial regulators, true of central bankers as well, they should be prepared to, to take those um, modest financial risks. Yeah. I, again, just focusing on the, the Irish aspect of the crisis, uh, for the moment, pr- probably, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but probably the most controversial element was the decision against wiping out the senior bondholders at the Anglo-Irish Bank. And, and in the book, you wonder aloud uh, who among the non-banks would still be holding 17 billion euros of these in September 2008, and the implication being that it was wealthy funds betting on being paid in full by the taxpayer. With perfect hindsight, do you think they should have been a full bail-in? Of uh, of the bank. Well, you know, you know, this is becomes such a complicated question. You you say yes, yes, in in a with full hindsight, it, there should have been. But with full hindsight, there would also have been a, a legal regime which would have made that straightforward. There would have been a European level uh, system of bank resolution, as indeed there is now which would have made it the normal thing to do and not something that would uh, make Ireland stand out as uh, some kind of uh, pariah in the euro area for having uh, walked away from from bank bondholders. This turned out later to be an issue when when an opportunity did arise uh, two years later when the guarantee had expired for some of the debt to... um, to bail in some bondholders, a relatively small amount that was left, but then the spillover effects to other European banking systems were seen as as really problematic by by the those in charge of the other European banking systems. So yes, it's easy to say with hindsight that's what should have been done. Um, it was also easy for Iceland to walk away because everybody could see that there is no way Iceland could afford to absorb. Uh, these debts. In Ireland, the situation had become very severe, but not so severe that Ireland couldn't actually afford, at much cost to itself, to to cover cover these um, liabilities. I I asked the question, what should different people have thought, given what they knew at the time? that's That's a more difficult question to answer. And I think the politicians are blamed. Politicians have to take blame because they are the ultimate decision makers. Uh, to some extent, that blame, they were not very well informed. They were not, they were not provided with very good information at the time. We know that. We know the docu- see the documentation. Mm-hmm. We know what people were told. Um, given the information they had, they still could have done better. But um, it's not surprising that they took the decision that they took. Remember, at that stage, Ireland was a triple A country. So you hear hear there's some problem with the banks. Uh, People are tossing around numbers like 5 billion or 7 billion. And you're thinking, well, this is just a loan to the banks. We get it back. 5 billion, that's not very much 
economy is 150 billion. Uh, we're a AAA country. Well, we can do this. And um, of course, it didn't turn out to be five or seven billion. It turned out to be 60 something billion. And mm. maybe it will be whittled back eventually to 37 or 38 billion. But that's a lot of, lot of money. And they didn't really had no real concept that they were exposing themselves to that amount of, of loss. Yeah. You say there that, that obviously now there is this um, framework for uh, resolving banks, but you also point out in the book that even with that, there's been a, a very inconsistent approach taken, uh, you know, first with Anglo, then with the Cypriot banks, then with Nova Bank in Portugal and the very ad hoc policy in Italy. So much so that I, I think probably the expectation in markets now is that um, – that the framework, the, the, the governments and regulators will try, national regulators will try everything they can to get around the uh, uh, the framework. It, what, what is your thinking on that? I think you put your finger on a very important point. Uh, I think that is the market expectation. And I think it's really the expectation among many professionals uh, close to policy making as well. They say, well, we could use these resolution tools for a small bank, but in a systemic crisis, surely we will not use these tools. Or for a very big bank, we don't imagine we could use those tools. Well, let's remember that this, these, this resolution regime, uh, and it's, it's not just a European one, there's a European-specific one, but there's a global uh, approach to resolution drawn up by the uh, Financial Stability Board. And this was basically to end too big to fail, to end the situation where banks could get too big and too important as too essential in the economy to, to be allowed to fail and that the taxpayer would have to come in. Now, with this ability to separate essential functions from non-essential functions and to wind down the non-essential functions and continue the essential functions of the bank in operation, th those resolution mechanisms are there precisely to avoid the taxpayer having to be drawn into the situation. And yet we hear people saying, well, we won't use it for a big bank. Well, if we're not going to use it for a big bank, why did we bother to go down this road of resolution regime? So I'm concerned about that. And I, I'm, I, I'm constantly urging people to be aware of the need to ensure that the resolution tools are not just there on paper in law, but that the plans and the, the um, preparedness, the living wills are ready to use in the case uh, that a big bank needs to be uh, resolved. Mm. What, what about extending that to, to sovereigns? Because again, there's, there's an implication, uh, I guess, probably since the Cyprus crisis that in, in future, um, if, if, if a, and, and certainly in the uh, ESM um, uh, statutes now, that if a country requires uh, external finance, official financing, that there should be a some form of bail-in of their of their sovereign bonds. It's, you you touch on that in the book that that it would have been better if there had been a decision to go one way or another, either full mutualisation or bail-in. What is your thinking on that today? Uh, I think that we're moving in Europe step and the European Union step by step towards a situation where there will be increased mutualization and a greater degree of, of um, if you like, collegiality be on these fiscal matters uh, between states. But we're not there yet. Uh, mm. it, in, in other countries, I think 
investors in public bonds in, are aware that restructurings can and do happen. And we're going to see quite a few of them probably in the, in the coming uh, months and, and years uh, after the, the fallout of the, of the COVID situation. Uh, within Europe, the question is, does Europe uh, stand together for the sovereigns of Europe? And if it does, does it have mechanisms to ensure that countries, individual countries, don't abuse that, that trust, that collegiality, and, uh, and get themselves into trouble that they now then push onto the, the, the centre? That is the, the nub of the European issue. Uh, many Euro- Europeans want to get to a situation where no European country uh, could feel that it's going to be on its own in the way that uh, the pressured countries in, in 20, 2010, 2011, 2013 felt. Um, it, it is, I, I think it's something that is still incomplete, mm. but the measures that were taken earlier in 2020 to establish a common fund, which would be a common, bar, a common amount of borrowing from the uh, European Commission to pay for some of the costs of the COVID crisis is an important step in that direction. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, I mean, obviously, we are facing a crisis now on com- compared to the one you faced in in, in two thousand and nine on on a, on a different scale. And in public comments this year, you said it would be quote a, a very big mistake to use the pre- previous crisis as a model for how public finances should be managed. And also that there there should be nothing comparable to the corrosive finger pointing that so divided Europe last time. Do, do you think in some ways the scale and suddenness of this crisis has been quite clarifying for policymakers, particularly at the ECB, actually, even people who would be normally classified as, as hawks? I think, yes, I think that reflection on the last crisis has, has led to a number of, of new, um, uh, under, well-understood principles. Uh, first of all, on the, in monetary policy, that the broader range of tools, including uh, quantitative easing and the purchase of, of government and other bonds in the market, that, that this is a tool that, that needs to be used energetically in the early stages and not uh, put aside for fear, exaggerated fear of, of uh, misbehavior by... Uh, by particular governments. The other lesson, I think, and perhaps this has been even overlearned, is that uh, fiscal tightening, which occurred very early on in the last crisis, by 2011, by the middle of 2011, most of the big countries had decided uh, the the crisis is over and we better tighten Mm -hmm. our belts now because we have incurred a lot of debt. It's quite clear now that that happened far too soon and was pursued far too energetically particularly in countries like the United Kingdom, like Germany. Uh, and, and so we found this year, 2020, in the COVID crisis, Germany, United Kingdom, United States, uh, even though in, in all of those cases governed by um, conservative parties, is spending very um, lavishly to ensure that there wasn't a, an excessive fiscal tightening in the middle, uh, facing into a crisis. So I think that lessons have been learned, but whether uh, whether the we have arrived at um, a perfect solution, 
I'm sure we haven't arrived at a perfect solution. The central bank mm. tools are um, necessary, but they are not yet sufficient to bring you know, amount of, of demand in the economy and inflation back to wh- where people want it to be. And nobody really has a clear pers- perspective on where those fiscal accounts are going to end up if the uh, pandemic continues at a severe level into 2021 or even into 2022. Mm. Yeah, you, you, uh, you also make a very, I mean, speaking of policy mistakes in early on in 2011, you, you make a very interesting point about um, the ECB's interest rate rise that year. Um, and I mean, I think it's, it's commonly assumed that was a mistake, but your explanation was for it was very interesting. You, you think it was largely because of the separation principle that had been established be- between the use of policy, policy instruments. Could you, could you talk us through that? Yes, I think that um, already in 2008, uh, the ECB struggled with, uh, to figure out in their minds, what are we doing now? In, in the, we have a banking crisis. Um, we have high inflation, middle of 2008, quite high inflation. And um, that would indicate interest rates should be, in fact, they increased interest rates in the middle of 2008. But at the same time, we have a banking crisis. So actually what we need to do... Uh, is a, a two-handed measure. Work on interest rates to ensure that inflation doesn't get out of hand, but be expansive in the in the provision of liquidity to stressed banks so that market functioning would continue in a normal way. And so this was a doctrine which was developed at the ECB in 2008 to say we, we, we have two, two types of tools, one for macroeconomic uh, stability and inflation, the other for financial stability and the functioning of the banking system. Now, when so that doctrine was still in effect for the following years. When it came to 2011, uh, inflation was starting to pick up again, largely driven by oil price rises. And some calculations that suggested that oil price rises lead to knock-on effects, demands for wage increases and knock-on onto the rest of the economy, that, that inflation could get to 3% or higher. And of course, the ECB's goal is to keep inflation below, but close to 2%. And so people who are most concerned about inflation felt, well, we know what to do. We have the separation principle. That means we should increase the interest rates to choke off any likely increase in, in inflation. And don't worry, I know we're in a crisis, but we have the other tool, which is expansive liquidity provision to the banking system. And we can, we can use that um, for that purpose. So we're not going to destabilize the, the banking system. What they should have done is to say, actually, the macroeconomy is still weak all over Europe, in, in, in most parts of Europe. We need to support demand and we need tools in addition to interest rates. Not only should we, um, should we, so we should be using the interest rate to maintain uh, to demand, which is weak because of the crisis, and we should be using um, the, the lending policies, and ultimately, of course, they should have been using um, a, a purchase of, of government securities. All policies should have been used to support the macroeconomic stability. In addition, of course, Inflation did go to 3% or above 3% that year, but it didn't have a knock-on effect. So there was a technical error in forecasting 
that uh, exaggerated the likely impact of these oil price rises. So I think that was that thinking. But of course, we, you have that that that, um, that that sort of intellectual framework. But behind the scenes, also there was a, in a sense, a battle between those who are were more hawkish, more conservative, and those who were more um, liberal. Uh, the separation principle allowed each of those camps to have a tool of mm-hmm. their own. I think it's clear that when it was proposed to um, raise interest rates, that proposal came not just from the existence of the uh, separation principle, but the proposal came from the Hawks and was um, adopted as a, a compromise position. Yes, this is the, this, the, this is the interest rate tool belongs to the Hawks. In this case, they will be allowed to do it. Um, the, um, the, the compromise will be agreed. That was one thing that I was a little bit uncomfortable with. Um, it was clear that a majority existed to accept that increase. But that majority meant that there was no vote. And so there was no opposition. But I was a bit annoyed when President Trichet went out to the public and said it was unanimous. But it was unanimous because nobody voted against it or, or uh, argued vigorously against it. But uh, there's a difference between consensus and unanimity. I, I've always found that puzzling uh, with the ECB. You, you mentioned in that chapter a, a what you call a degree of deference to the ECB president. Um, but this idea that the ECB governing council should never vote, that, that a consensus or a, or a majority emerges and then the president sort of sums it up. But isn't the point of decision making by committees to, to generate creative ideas, find creative compromises and so on? Um, was that the case during your time on the governing council or, or did it tend to be like that, that there, a, a majority or a perception of a majority would emerge and then it would just be, you, you would just move on? Well, I think that the there are two considerations that lead the ECB to adopt that single voice and um, not publicising disagreements. Um, one is for coherence of messaging to the market. So if there is a majority, and if, if the majority is, is uh, determined on a, on a particular course, there's no point in having uh, dissident voices confusing the market as to what's actually going to happen. Uh, you you have 20, well, I can't remember the number now, it's 19 plus 625 now, decision makers in the governing council. That's far more than the voting members of the, uh, of the uh, FOMC, are far more than the size of the Monetary Policy Committee in, in, in the Bank of England. And you could have a cacophony, uh, and people trying to then Say, oh, well, we heard we heard negative views from six members, ambiguous views from five, and then you know, you, you, this this would not be an effective way to communicate the policy decision of the ECB. So that's one reason: too, too many decision makers, so uh, a need to coordinate on on a single voice. Um, and so, if any governor, a member of the governing council, is to speak on monetary policy, it is an understood principle although now increasingly being violated, that uh, that that member of, of the governing council should be there to explain into the local context and perhaps in the local language what, what the ECB is doing, but not 
to express their own personal views as we hear personal views, for example, from members of the US FOMC. We hear personal views from the members of the Bank of England's Monetary Policy Committee. So it's a, di- it's a different approach. The second reason is that there is still a perception that uh, the independence of thought of members of the governing council could be compromised by uh, a perceived pressure that they could not act in the interests of the euro area as a whole when that conflicted with the interests of their own country. So you could imagine a country where a higher interest rate was seemed appropriate, um, but for the euro area, lower interest rate was, is, is clearly the right answer to get inflation to, to the right place. Now, is the person from coming from the country where the higher interest rate would be appropriate, is that person going to be pilloried at home, make his or her job made more difficult by the fact that he is identified as a voter on one side or the other? So this, this is, this is a, a perception which is more relevant for some countries than for others. Um, I, I think that most of the members of the governing council would be quite happy to say in public, look, um, we joined this system for a common monetary policy. I made my contribution to this common monetary policy in the common interest. I know that we would in Ireland have liked this or that, but um, but that's not what, what you put me in there to do. Uh, however, it's not so easy in some countries for that independence of, of, uh, of thought and um, independence of, of position. Actually, there wasn't much of a conflict in my case during the period, that was would have been one one. It's not actually not a conflict. I didn't think it was a good idea to raise interest rates for Europe anyway. It wasn't certainly wasn't a good idea for Ireland, but it wasn't a good idea for Europe. So there's no conflict in that case. Uh, a, f- a number of conflicts arose on specific issues, not monetary policy issues, where uh, of course I would uh, be making sure that the Ireland's interest was uh, hmm. completely represented. But also, I've, I've noticed over 20 years that, yes, at, right at the beginning, I think there was that great worry about uh, national perception. But today you see people like, I mean, for example, take take uh, take Oli Rehn in, in Finland. I mean, Finland was perceived for a long time to be on the hawkish side of the argument, and yet pretty much all his arguments have been on the dovish side in the last year or a couple of years. Um, uh, uh, François Villois... You know, he adapts his position according to, he seems to adapt his position according to what euro area conditions are rather than what French conditions are. So I, I just, I don't quite get why the ECB is sticking with this, with this communications well, framework. <clears throat> what I, I think um, th- this is a situation which gradually evolves. Um, you remember there are 19 members, the countries that you speak about, uh, Finland and France, it's a rather different policy environment um, to some of uh, some of the member countries, where it would be more difficult for them to for, for governors to speak out against what are perceived as, as national interests. But it's an evolving situation, and I wouldn't be surprised over the next number of years if we get to a position where uh, votes were taken and recorded and even before votes, so you don't necessarily have to have a vote, um, the positions are identified. We Quite detailed summary minutes 
summary reports of the monetary policy discussions are published, but they are never identify who said what. Um, they use language like the view was expressed that uh, uh, some many speakers thought um, some speakers felt, and there's some some kind of mapping. Uh, some means like has to be more than one. Uh, the view was expressed might only be one. Uh, so. Um, many speakers must be more than I don't know how many. So you, you have a, a, a kind of a code, but I think we could see a move to uh, this. This has been discussed. It has been discussed uh, as to whether there should be a move. And even in, in my time, which was now um, five or six years ago, uh, that discussion was held, and the view, the view, majority view was taken that. Um, Let's let's not take that step now because of the difficulties that essentially because of the difficulties that would be would be caused for in some countries. So I think it it will happen. Also, what we notice is, and again, this is was already starting to happen, particularly around the time that quantitative easing was begun in the early nineteen early two thousand fifteen late late two thousand fourteen discussion of it. Um, uh, uh, you know, basically, members of the governing council uh, breaching the convention and saying, "Well, I wasn't in favour of this." Well, well, that's considered bad form and uh, and and not not productive. Uh, if there's a, a convention, either you stick to the convention, or the, or the convention should be abolished. It's not right to unilaterally uh, take advantage of the convention and get a lot of publicity by being the only person who says something. Aha! Look, different from the rest of them. Great publicity. Mm-hmm. Actually, on, on, on the drafting of statements, I, I heard that you were quite heavily used as the only uh, mother tongue speaker, although you were educated in Irish, right? But uh, is that right, that, that you, you had the nickname of Shakespeare or something like that? Um, you know, um, I, I'm sorry to tell you this, but this is true of, of my predecessors as well. It's a kind of um, a conventional, um, it, it's, you know, you could consider it patronizing, but it's only it's only a little joke, really. And it's true that, you know, I sometimes made sure that an apostrophe was, was removed from an it or inserted, whatever, whether it was right or, or wrong. Um, uh, yeah, obviously. Um, there are actually a number of other native speakers, um, uh, Cypriot um, governors t- tend to be Maltese uh, as well. Um, but it's true that uh, there's this kind of joking joking reference to, we must turn to Shakespeare, which of course uh, is absolutely wrong because the, the, the real masters of, of English are um, Joyce and, and Beckett and James Heaney, not Shakespeare at all. <laughs> Absolutely. Actually, co- coming coming back to Ireland, um, and I would urge people to read this book because of the lessons that can be learned from Ireland as a test case for a small open economy. And as you say in the book, um, most countries are small and uh, other countries outside the euro area faced similar meltdowns for similar reasons, as you said, like Iceland and Latvia. But taking the whole of the last decade, decade into account, do you think Ireland would have coped better inside or outside the euro area with the crisis it faced. Um, I'm I'm pretty sure it did a, a bit better inside, not an awful lot better, but a, a bit better. Um, with without being in the euro, yes, there would have been a devaluation, um, and Iceland had a devaluation, uh, so you can see exactly what would have happened. Iceland did recover somewhat more quickly. Um, it. In, in, in terms of economic activity, it had less unemployment. So this is a kind of distributional change. Uh, people in Ireland who retained their jobs didn't 
have a reduction in wages, at least at first, and then, and then it was more gentle. Uh, people in Iceland didn't lose their jobs, some of them did, but the, even the ones who didn't lost real earnings right away because the exchange rate collapsed. So there are, there are those important differences, but actually both economies recovered quite well and uh, and, and anyway, direct comparison, Ireland and Iceland is, is really not, not very productive. What, what um, Ireland managed to do is it, it's the, the, the engine of Ireland's economic performance is based on globalization, exports, exports of services, multinational corporations. Let's not get into all the business about tax advantages, which I'm not particularly happy about, but that that whole uh, whole uh, multinational integration in the global economy that survived right through and why did it survive because these companies realized actually we're not affected by this uh, little local problem of a, a fiscal and banking crisis uh, the, our contracts are secure exchange rate is stable inflation is low too low um, and Although the domestic economy, and particularly from the building, the construction sector, the tax position of households, the unemployment situation was uh, very heavily affected, and the over-indebtedness of households, but the, the engine was intact, and the recovery eventually was very strong. And the economy back to, you know, below 5% unemployment uh, by uh, you know 2016 or something like that. So, and the motor continuing to to function. It, if it hadn't been in the euro area, it have had a very high inflation rate. Might have driven away those companies. They might not have been able to complete their contracts. And um, so, I, I, I'm I'm pretty pretty sure that that um, uh, well, another factor is the int- low interest at which Ireland was able eventually to borrow the money that all of this had cost. So, you know, for a while in 2010, 2011, interest rates remained very high. Even the interest rates on the loans from the IMF and, and the European funds were really quite high and, and worryingly so. As if it might, might, not be, might not be low enough. We might not be able to get out of this. But as soon as the European loan funds decided to charge interest on a different basis, this was really driven by what had happened in Greece. And as interest rates came down generally, and as the whole method of financing the uh, deficit of the failed banks through the, the um, uh, working of the central bank lending operations all ended up with very low interest rate costs. So although the, there was a huge increase in debt, maybe something like 100% of, of, of GNP uh, in additional borrowing over a very short period of time, all this additional borrowing uh, left interest costs really not all that much higher than they mm-hmm. had been uh, before the crisis. Yeah. Well, I, another area where I think um, Ireland might be a test case for the situation we're in now is is the deal you did on uh, promissory notes um, that were used to uh, resolve Anglo. Because these were so expensive to service, the Irish authorities were allowed to swap them for very long-term bonds as long as the central banks sold them um, in the market as conditions improved. And seven years on, 70% of these bonds have been sold. So could you imagine something like this being a model for pandemic-related debt that the ECB has taken onto its balance sheet over the coming 
Well, of course, this was a very um, complicated and, and I think ingenious scheme that we ended up with. I, I had the good fortune to have taught um, uh, financial economics and uh, understood a bit about financial engineering and, and tried a few different models and schemes and um, made sure that the scheme that, that we came up with it was com- fully compliant with all the principles and laws governing central banking and, and the euro system, but was also of an extreme benefit to um, the future of, of, of the Irish economy and, and, and so forth. So, yes, it, it was a, a, great, a great scheme. Uh, now, we actually, in a way, you could say that we used those financial uh, measures to get some of the advantages of quantitative easing several years before quantitative easing started. Now we have quantitative easing and interest rates are quite low. Barriers are quite low. They're very low, even for countries, even Italy, which is high 1.5%, I think they're borrowing 10 years. So very low interest rates. So we already have those mechanisms now in place. So it's not, you don't have to develop complicated financial engineering the interest rates are low, and as long as they can be kept low, uh, then it is much more easy to finance all of the expenditures that are being made now for COVID. So the, the trick in, in that is to make sure that the markets understand that the borrowing is not now forever. The borrowing is a surge borrowing to deal with a temporary situation. I don't know how temporary, but it's a temporary situation and that uh, fiscal accounts will get back to something like normal uh, fairly soon. But do you think that the the PEP, the the, the pandemic-related debt that is going to be sitting on the ECB's balance sheet by the end of this crisis, it... I think think there's a perception in markets that it's going to stay there pretty much forever. Um, That's certainly not the communication communication coming from the ECB. And some people have suggested it it could be converted into perpetuals, essentially. Is is that something that you would... uh, Is that a view you would share? Well, uh, it will stay on on the ECB's balance sheet as long as it's necessary. Now, people get very pessimistic in the middle of crisis and say that we can never get out of this. And so, um, so the markets may say, oh, I think it's going to stay forever. Maybe it won't stay forever. Maybe, they think, well, maybe we'll need, the ECB will be needing to, um, to adjust things for in an entirely different environment. But it'll stay there as long as it's necessary. Will it be converted into, into zero interest perpetual securities? Um, I'm doubtful of that particular mechanism. I mean, if I think about what is a zero interest perpetual security, uh, it is actually nothing. So some people who have read legal documents and said, well, the ECB could certainly use uh, in- zero interest securities. They could also buy perpetuities. Therefore, they could also they could buy zero interest perpetuities and pay good money for them. You cannot buy a zero interest perpetuity and pay good money for it. You know, that seems nonsense to me. I, I don't think that particular mechanism is, is, is available. But there are. But the, the central bank has shown its ability to innovate and to make uh, make the burden of debt, necessary debt accumulated in a crisis, really, really very small. Mm. Okay, I have one final question, but it's 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 a big one. You could answer it quickly, though, if you like. Um, 
What kind of economy do you think we're going to be looking at on the other side of the pandemic? And how should governments meet the cost of the long-term repair? I think we'll um, we'll see a lot of changes in the way things are done. We see a, a shift, the, the shift to electronic communication in offices it will be permanent. Uh, there'll be a whole change in, in commercial property and office the way offices work. I think we'll see a, a permanent change in the amount of of air travel. I could be wrong on that, but I think it will be a permanent. And I think we'll see a, probably a. a a change in the, in the pattern of hospitality. The, all these things will change. So although there are some great optimists on the financial markets at the moment, we're speaking, equity markets still very, very strong. They think the recovery is going to be strong. The recovery may be strong, but it will be differentiated and some parts of the economy will be weak. And some people are um, suffering major losses of income. And I, I imagine that governments will also decide won't be forced to, but they will decide under political pressure to rethink uh, social welfare distributional policies. Uh, I think that the, uh, the fact that that many governments have uh, have made large payments, much higher than normal unemployment payments in the immediate aftermath of the the, the, the crisis broke, reflected a lack of awareness on the part of politicians up to then of how little was being paid to unemployed people. They say, how much do we pay them? In Ireland, it's 203 euros a week. Oh, that's not enough. We'll pay them 350. So I think that awareness, say, wait, we were only paying 203 euros? No, 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 you can't just pay 203 euros. And that will have some lasting effect uh, on uh, that, that sort of thinking will have a lasting effect on the approach of governments and politicians to distribution issues. Right. Well, uh, today I have been talking to Patrick Honohan about his book, Currency, Credit and Crisis, published by Cambridge University Press. Patrick, thanks again for coming onto the podcast. Thanks very much, Tim.